0: Section 24 of the report of the president's commission on the assassination of president kennedy the warren commission report this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org report of the president's commission on the assassination of president kennedy the warren commission report by the president's commission on the assassination of president kennedy Chapter six: Investigation of Possible Conspiracy Part one This chapter sets forth the findings of the Commission as to whether Lee Harvey Oswald had any accomplices in the planning or execution of the assassination. Particularly after the slaying of Oswald by Jack Ruby under the circumstances described in the preceding chapter, Rumors and suspicions developed regarding the existence of a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. As discussed in Appendix 12, many of these rumors were based on a lack of information as to the nature and extent of evidence that Oswald alone fired the shots which killed President Kennedy and wounded Governor Connolly, Others of the more widely publicized rumors maintained that Oswald must have received aid from one or more persons or political groups, ranging from the far left to the far right of the political spectrum, or from a foreign government, usually either the Castro regime in Cuba or the Soviet Union. This commission faced substantial difficulties in determining whether anyone conspired with or assisted the person who committed the assassination. Prior to his own death, Oswald had neither admitted his own involvement nor implicated any other persons in the assassination of the President. The problem of determining the existence or non-existence of a conspiracy was compounded because of the possibility of subversive activity by a foreign power. Witnesses and evidence located in other countries were not subject to subpoena, as they would have been if they had been located in the United States. When evidence was obtained from a foreign nation, it could not be appraised as effectively as if it had been derived from a domestic source. The Commission has given the closest scrutiny to all available evidence which related or might have related to a foreign country. All such evidence was tested whenever possible against the contingency that it had been fabricated or slanted to mislead or confuse. In order to meet its obligations fully, the Commission has investigated each rumor and allegation linking Oswald to a conspiracy which has come to its attention, regardless of the source. In addition, the Commission has explored the details of Lee Harvey Oswald's activities and life, especially in the months immediately preceding the assassination, in order to develop any investigative lead relevant to the issue of conspiracy, all of oswald's known writings or other possessions which might have been used for code or other espionage purposes have been examined by either the federal bureau of investigation or the national security agency or both agencies to determine whether they were so used in setting forth the results of this investigation the first section of this chapter reviews the facts related to the assassination itself previously considered in more detail in Chapter 4. If any conspiracy did exist, it might have manifested itself at some point during Oswald's preparation for the shooting, his execution of the plan, or his escape from the scene of the assassination. The Commission has therefore studied the precise means by which the assassination occurred, for any traces of evidence that Oswald received any form of assistance in effecting the killing. The second section of this chapter deals more broadly with Oswald's life since 1959. During the period following his discharge from the Marines in 1959, Oswald engaged in several activities which demand close scrutiny to determine whether, through these pursuits, he developed any associations which were connected with the planning or execution of the assassination. Oswald professed commitment to Marxist ideology, He defected to the Soviet Union in 1959, he attempted to expatriate himself and acquire Soviet citizenship, and he resided in the Soviet Union until June of 1962. After his return to the United States, he sought to maintain contacts with the Communist Party, Socialist Workers' Party, and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He associated with various Russian-speaking citizens in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, some of whom had resided in russia he traveled to mexico city where he visited both the cuban and soviet embassies seven weeks before the assassination and he corresponded with the soviet embassy in washington dc in view of these activities the commission has instituted a thorough investigation to determine whether the assassination was in some manner directed or encouraged through contacts made abroad or through Oswald's politically-oriented activities in this country. The Commission has also considered whether any connections existed between Oswald and certain right-wing activity in Dallas, which, shortly before the assassination, led to the publication of hostile criticism of President Kennedy. The final section of this chapter considers the possibility that Jack Ruby was part of a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. The Commission explored Ruby's background and his activities in the months prior to the assassination, and especially his activities in the two days after the assassination, in an effort to determine whether there was any indication that Ruby was implicated in that event. The Commission also sought to ascertain the truth or falsity of assertions that Oswald and Ruby were known to one another prior to the assassination. In considering the question of foreign involvement, the Commission has received valuable assistance from the Department of State, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and other Federal agencies with special competence in the field of foreign investigation, Some of the information furnished by these agencies is of a highly confidential nature. Nevertheless, because the disclosure of all facts relating to the assassination of President Kennedy is of great public importance, the Commission has included in this report all information furnished by these agencies which the Commission relied upon in coming to its conclusions, or which tended to contradict those conclusions. Confidential sources of information as contrasted with the information itself, have, in a relatively few instances, been withheld. Circumstances Surrounding the Assassination Earlier chapters have set forth the evidence upon which the Commission concluded that President Kennedy was fired upon from a single window in the southeast corner of the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, and that Lee Harvey Oswald was the person who fired the shots from this point, AS REFLECTED IN THOSE CHAPTERS, A CERTAIN SEQUENCE OF EVENTS NECESSARILY TOOK PLACE IN ORDER FOR THE ASSASSINATION TO HAVE OCCURRED AS IT DID. THE MOTORCADE TRAVELED PAST THE TEXAS SCHOOLBOOK DEPOSITORY, OSWALD HAD ACCESS TO THE SIXTH FLOOR OF THE BUILDING, OSWALD BROUGHT THE RIFLE INTO THE BUILDING, THE CARTONS WERE ARRANGED AT THE SIXTH FLOOR WINDOW, AND OSWALD ESCAPED FROM THE BUILDING BEFORE THE POLICE HAD SEALED OFF THE EXITS accordingly the commission has investigated these circumstances to determine whether oswald received help from any other person in planning or performing the shooting selection of motorcade route the factors involved in the choice of the motorcade route by the secret service have been discussed in chapter two of this report it was there indicated that after passing through a portion of suburban dallas the motorcade was to travel west on main street and then to the mart by way of the stemmons freeway the most direct route from that point this route would take the motorcade along the traditional parade route through downtown dallas it allowed the maximum number of persons to observe the president and it enabled the motorcade to cover the distance from Love Field to the Trade Mart in the 45 minutes allocated by members of the White House staff in planning the President's schedule in Dallas. No member of the Secret Service, the Dallas Police Department, or the local host committee who was consulted felt that any other route would be preferable. To reach Stemmons Freeway from Main Street, it was determined that the motorcade would turn right from Main Street onto Houston Street for one block, and then left onto Elm Street, proceeding through the triple underpass to the Stemmons Freeway access road. This route took the motorcade past the Texas School Book Depository building on the northwest corner of Elm and Houston Streets. Because of the sharp turn at this corner, the motorcade also reduced its speed. The motorcade would have passed approximately 90 yards further from the Depository Building, and made no turn near the building, if it had attempted to reach the Stemmons Freeway directly from Main Street. The road plan in Dealey Plaza, however, is designed to prevent such a turn. In order to keep motorists from reaching the freeway from Main Street, a concrete barrier has been erected between Main and Elm Streets, extending beyond the freeway entrance. Hence, it would have been necessary for the motorcade either to have driven over this barrier, or to have made a sharp S-turn in order to have entered the freeway from Main Street. Selection of the motorcade route was thus entirely appropriate, and based on such legitimate considerations as the origin and destination of the motorcade, the desired opportunity for the President to greet large numbers of people, and the normal patterns of traffic. Oswald's presence in the Depository Building Oswald's presence as an employee in the Texas School Book Depository Building was the result of a series of happenings unrelated to the President's trip to Dallas. He obtained the depository job after almost two weeks of job hunting, which began immediately upon his arrival in Dallas from Mexico on October 8, 1963. At that time he was in poor financial circumstances, having arrived from Mexico City with approximately $133 or less, and with his unemployment compensation benefits due to expire on October eighth, Oswald and his wife were expecting the birth of their second child, who was in fact born on October twentieth. In attempting to procure work, Oswald utilized normal channels, including the Texas Employment Commission. On October 4, 1963, Oswald applied for a position with Paget Printing Corporation, which was located at 1313 Industrial Boulevard, several blocks from President Kennedy's parade route. Oswald favorably impressed the plant superintendent, who checked his prior job references, one of which was Jagger's Child Stovall, the firm where Oswald had done photography work from October 1962 to April 1963. The following report was written by Paget's plant superintendent on the reverse side of Oswald's job application. Bob Stovall does not recommend this man. He was released because of his record as a troublemaker. Has communistic tendencies. Oswald received word that Paget Printing had hired someone else. Oswald's employment with the Texas School Book Depository came about through a chance conversation on Monday, October fourteenth, between Ruth Payne, with whom his family was staying while Oswald was living in a rooming house in Dallas, and two of Mrs. Payne's neighbors. During a morning conversation over coffee, at which Marina Oswald was present, Oswald's search for employment was mentioned. The neighbors suggested several places where Oswald might apply for work. One of the neighbors present, Linnie May Randall, said that her brother had recently been hired as a school book order filler at the Texas School Book Depository, and she thought the depository might need additional help. She testified, And of course you know just being neighborly and everything, we felt sorry for Marina because her baby was due right away as we understood it and he didn't have any work. When Marina Oswald and Mrs. Payne returned home, Mrs. Payne promptly telephoned the Texas School Book Depository and spoke to Superintendent Roy Truly, whom she did not know. Truly agreed to interview Oswald, who at the time was in Dallas seeking employment. When Oswald called that evening, Mrs. Payne told him of her conversation with Truly, The next morning, Oswald went to the Texas School Book Depository, where he was interviewed and hired for the position of order filler. On the same date, the Texas Employment Commission attempted to refer Oswald to an airline company, which was looking for baggage and cargo handlers, at a salary which was $100 per month higher than that offered by the depository company. The Employment Commission tried to advise Oswald of this job, at 10.30 a.m. on October 16, 1963. Since the records of the Commission indicate that Oswald was then working, it seems clear that Oswald was hired by the depository company before the higher-paying job became available. It is unlikely that he ever learned of this second opportunity. Although publicity concerning the President's trip to Dallas appeared in Dallas newspapers as early as September 13, 1963, the planning of the motorcade route was not started until after November 4, when the Secret Service was first notified of the trip. A final decision as to the route could not have been reached until November 14, when the trademark was selected as the luncheon site, Although news reports on November 15th and November 16th might have led a person to believe that the motorcade would pass the depository building, the route was not finally selected until November 18th. It was announced in the press on November 19th, only three days before the President's arrival. Based on the circumstances of Oswald's employment and the planning of the motorcade route, The Commission has concluded that Oswald's employment in the Depository was wholly unrelated to the President's trip to Dallas. Bringing Rifle into Building On the basis of the evidence developed in Chapter 4, the Commission concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald carried the rifle used in the assassination into the Depository Building on Friday, November twenty-second, 1963, in the handmade brown paper bag found near the window from which the shots were fired. The arrangement by which Buell Wesley Fraser drove Oswald between Irving and Dallas was an innocent one, having commenced when Oswald first started working at the Depository. As noted above, it was Fraser's sister, Linnie Mae Randall, who had suggested to Ruth Payne that Oswald might be able to find employment at the Depository. When Oswald started working there, Frazier, who lived only a half a block away from the Paines, offered to drive Oswald to and from Irving whenever he was going to stay at the Paines home. Although Oswald's request for a ride to Irving on Thursday, november twenty first, was a departure from the normal weekend pattern, Oswald gave the explanation that he needed to obtain curtain rods for an apartment in Dallas. This served also to explain the long package which he took with him from Irving to the depository building the next morning. Further, there is no evidence that Ruth Payne or Marina Oswald had reason to believe that Oswald's return was in any way related to an attempt to shoot the President the next day. Although his visit was a surprise, since he arrived on a Thursday instead of Friday for his usual weekend visit— Both women testified that they thought he had come to patch up a quarrel which he had had with his wife a few days earlier, when she had learned that he was living in Dallas under an assumed name. It has also been shown that Oswald had the opportunity to work in the Payne's garage on Thursday evening, and prepare the rifle by disassembling it, if it were not already disassembled, and packing it in the brown bag. It has been demonstrated that the paper and tape from which the bag was made came from the shipping room of the Texas School Book Depository, and that Oswald had access to this material. Neither Ruth Payne nor Marina Oswald saw the paper bag or the paper and tape out of which the bag was constructed. Oswald actually prepared the bag in the depository out of materials available to him there. He could have concealed it in the jacket or shirt which he was wearing. The Commission has found no evidence which suggests that Oswald required, or in fact received, any assistance in bringing the rifle into the building, other than the innocent assistance provided by Fraser in the form of a ride to work. ACCOMPLICES AT THE SCENE OF THE ASSASSINATION The arrangement of boxes at the window from which the shots were fired was studied to determine whether Oswald would require any assistance in moving the cartons to the window, Cartons had been stacked on the floor a few feet behind the window, thus shielding Oswald from the view of anyone on the sixth floor who did not attempt to go behind them. Most of those cartons had been moved there by other employees to clear an area for laying a new flooring on the west end of the sixth floor. Superintendent Roy Truly testified that the floor-laying crew had moved a long row of books parallel to the windows on the south side, and had quite a lot of cartons in the southeast corner of the building. He said that there was not any particular pattern that the men used in putting them there. They were just piled up there, more or less, at that time. According to Truly, several cartons which had been in the extreme southeast corner had been placed on top of the ones that had been piled in front of the southeast corner window. The arrangement of the three boxes in the window and the one on which the assassin may have sat has been described previously. Two of these four boxes, weighing approximately fifty-five pounds each, had been moved by the floor-laying crew from the west side of the floor to the area near the southwest corner. The carton on which the assassin may have sat might not even have been moved by the assassin at all. A photograph of the scene depicts this carton on the floor alongside other similar cartons. Oswald's right palm print on this carton may have been placed there as he was sitting on the carton, rather than while carrying it. In any event, both of these fifty-five-pound cartons could have been carried by one man. The remaining two cartons contained light, block-like reading aids called rolling readers, weighing only about eight pounds each. Although they had been moved approximately forty feet from their normal locations, at the southeast corner window, it would appear that one man could have done this in a matter of seconds. In considering the possibility of accomplices at the window, the Commission evaluated the significance of the presence of fingerprints other than Oswald's on the four cartons found in and near the window. Three of Oswald's prints were developed on two of the cartons, In addition, a total of twenty-five identifiable prints were found on the four cartons. Moreover, prints were developed which were considered as not identifiable, that is, the quality of the print was too fragmentary to be of value for identification purposes. As has been explained in Chapter 4, the Commission determined that none of the warehouse employees who might have customarily handled these cartons left prints which could be identified, this was considered of some probative value in determining whether oswald moved the cartons to the window all but one of the twenty-five definitely identifiable prints were the prints of two persons an fbi employee and a member of the dallas police department who had handled the cartons during the course of the investigation one identifiable palm print was not identified The presence on these cartons of unidentified prints, whether or not identifiable, does not appear to be unusual, since these cartons contained commercial products which had been handled by many people throughout their normal course of manufacturing, warehousing, and shipping. Unlike other items of evidence, as for example a ransom note in a kidnapping, these cartons could contain the prints of many people having nothing to do with the assassination, Moreover, the FBI does not maintain a filing system for palm prints, because, according to the supervisor of the Bureau's latent fingerprint section, Sebastian F. Latona, the problems of classification would make such a system impracticable. Finally, in considering the significance of the unidentified rifled prints, the commission gave weight to the opinion of Latona to the effect that people could handle these cartons without leaving prints which were capable of being developed. Though the fingerprints other than Oswald's on the boxes thus provide no indication of the presence of an accomplice at the window, two depository employees are known to have been present briefly on the sixth floor, during the period between 11.45 a.m. when the floor-laying crew stopped for lunch and the moment of the assassination. One of these was Charles Givens, a member of the floor-laying crew, who went down on the elevator with the others, and then returned to the sixth floor to get his jacket and cigarettes. He saw Oswald walking away from the southeast corner, but saw no one else on the sixth floor at that time. He then took one of the elevators back to the first floor at approximately 11.55 a.m., Bonnie Ray Williams, who was also working with the floor laying crew, returned to the sixth floor at about noon to eat his lunch and watch the motorcade. He looked out on Elm Street from a position in the area of the third or fourth set of windows from the east wall. At this point he was approximately twenty to thirty feet away from the southeast corner window. He remained there for about five, ten, maybe twelve minutes, eating his lunch, which consisted of chicken and a bottle of soda pop. Williams saw no one on the sixth floor during this period, although the stacks of books would have prevented his seeing the east side of the building. After finishing his lunch, Williams took the elevator down, because no one had joined him on the sixth floor to watch the motorcade. He stopped at the fifth floor, where he joined Harold Norman and James Jarman, Jr., who watched the motorcade with him from a position on the fifth floor, directly below the point from which the shots were fired, Williams left the remains of his lunch, including chicken bones and a bottle of soda, near the window where he was eating. Several witnesses outside the building claim to have seen a person in the southeast corner window on the sixth floor. As has already been indicated, some were able to offer better descriptions than others, and one, Howard L. Brennan, made a positive identification of Oswald as being the person at the window. Although there are differences among these witnesses with regard to their ability to describe the person they saw, none of these witnesses testified to seeing more than one person in the window. One witness, however, offered testimony which, if accurate, would create the possibility of an accomplice at the window at the time of the assassination, the witness was eighteen-year-old Arnold Rowland, who testified in great detail concerning his activities and observations on November 22, 1963. He and his wife were awaiting the motorcade, standing on the east side of Houston Street between Main and Elm, when he looked toward the depository building and noticed a man holding a rifle standing back from the southwest corner window on the sixth floor. The man was rather slender in proportion to his size, and of light complexion, with dark hair. Rowland said that his wife was looking elsewhere at the time, and when they looked back to the window the man was gone from our vision. They thought the man was most likely someone protecting the President. After the assassination, Rowland signed an affidavit in which he told of seeing this man, although Rowland was unable to identify him. When Rowland testified before the Commission on March tenth, 1964, he claimed, for the first time, to have seen another person on the sixth floor. Rowland said that before he had noticed the man with the rifle on the southwest corner of the sixth floor, he had seen an elderly Negro man hanging out that window on the southeast corner of the sixth floor. Rowland described the negro man as very thin, an elderly gentleman, bald or practically bald, very thin hair if he wasn't bald, between fifty and sixty years of age, five feet eight inches to five feet ten inches tall, with fairly dark complexion. Rowland claimed that he looked back two or three times, and noticed that the man remained until five or six minutes prior to the time the motorcade came, Rowland did not see him thereafter. He made no mention of this negro man in his affidavit, and while he said he told FBI agents about the man in the southeast corner window when interviewed on the Saturday and Sunday following the assassination, no such statement appears in any FBI report. Mrs. Rowland testified that her husband never told her about seeing any other man on the sixth floor, except the man with the rifle in the southwest corner that he first saw. She also was present during Rowland's interview with representatives of the FBI, and said that she did not hear him make any such statement, although she also said that she did not hear everything that was discussed. Mrs. Rowland testified that after her husband had first talked about seeing a man with the rifle, she had looked back more than once at the depository building, and saw no person looking out of any window on the sixth floor. She also said that, at times, my husband is prone to exaggerate. Because of inconsistencies in Rowland's testimony, and the importance of his testimony to the question of a possible accomplice, the Commission requested the FBI to conduct an inquiry into the truth of a broad range of statements made by Rowland to the Commission. The investigation showed that numerous statements by Rowland concerning matters about which he would not normally be expected to be mistaken, such as the subjects he had studied in school, grades he received, whether or not he had graduated from high school, and whether or not he had been admitted to college, were false. The only possible corroboration for Rowland's story is found in the testimony of Roger D. Craig, a deputy sheriff of Dallas County, whose testimony on other aspects of the case has been discussed in Chapter 4. Craig claimed that about ten minutes after the assassination, he talked to a young couple, Mr. and Mrs. Rowland, and the boy said he saw two men on the sixth floor of the book depository building over there. One of them had a rifle with a telescopic sight on it, but he thought they were Secret Service agents or guards and didn't report it. This was about, oh, he said, fifteen minutes before the motorcade ever arrived. According to Craig, Rowland said that he looked back a few minutes later, and the other man was gone, and there was just one man, the man with the rifle. Craig further testified that Rowland told him that when he first saw the two men, they were walking back and forth in front of the window for several minutes. They were both white men, and one of them had a rifle with a scope on it. This report by Craig is contradicted by the testimony of both of the Rowlands and by every recorded interview with them conducted by law enforcement agencies after the assassination. As part of its investigation of Rowlands' allegation and of the general question of accomplices at the scene of the assassination, the Commission undertook an investigation of every person employed in the Texas School Book Depository building. Two employees might possibly fit the general description of an elderly negro man, bald or balding. These two men were on the first floor of the building during the period before and during the assassination. Moreover, all of the employees were asked whether they saw any strangers in the building on the morning of November 22nd. Only one employee saw a stranger, whom he described as a feeble individual who had to be helped up the front steps of the building, He went to a public restroom and then left the building five minutes later, about forty minutes before the assassination. Rowland's failure to report his story, despite several interviews, until his appearance before the commission, the lack of probative corroboration, and the serious doubts about his credibility, have led the Commission to reject the testimony that Rowland saw an elderly balding negro man in the southeast corner window of the sixth floor of the depository building several minutes before the assassination. end of section twenty four recording by Maria Casper.